I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. This week, I have the absolute pleasure to speak with a gentleman you've heard on this show before briefly, Mr. Hank Beebe. Thank you so much for doing the show. Be glad to hear you. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about your career as a composer, as a musician. Uh, for those who are not aware, uh, you're featured pretty heavily in Steve Young uh, and David Wisenant's Bathtubs Over Broadway documentary, which is a brilliant movie um, and helps put some focus on work that you've been doing for over 70 years, uh, composing music uh, for, for corporate musicals. But you, I'm sure you've done other stuff as well. But as Steve Young has emphasized, a lot of that stuff is comedic, um, and a lot of it's on vinyl. So let's let's talk about how you got started in music in general, and and where your your uh, penchant for working in, in in musicals comes from. Well, I knew from the age of sixteen that I wanted to be a composer, and I aimed for that. I was uh, I went through my stint in the Navy during uh, World War Two. And <clears throat> went back to college and ended up with a master's degree in uh, musical composition. That kind of set me off in the right direction, at least with being classically trained. Mm -hmm. Then I have decided to leave teaching. I taught for a couple of years uh, and started a music department in a school that didn't have one. Wow. And then went on to uh, New York to see what I could do about a career in, in composing music. It was a daunting thing because I was advised by almost everybody, including my parents and uh, my advisor in college, that I should not try that because it, my odds were so far against me. And I had to agree that they were, they were telling me the truth, and it's, it has certainly been the case, except that I had to try. Mm -hmm. I had I did not want to wake up at the age of 55 and realize I wish I had taken that other road because here I am comfortably retiring now from a job and I that I would love to have tried it and and even if I failed I would rather have tried it and failed than to not try it. Yeah. So I just threw myself into the arena and went around to producers and publishers in New York and. <clears throat> finally got a, 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 an agent to take me on. Uh, he liked my songs my, that I had written, and I, he said, uh, I'd like to send you around to audition for the Chevrolet show. Well, in those days, that was a, a show that, that featured a singer called Dinah Shore. Yeah. It was very And uh, I thought I was going to write a piece for her. It turned out that the Chevrolet show was not that at all. It was a huge musical budgeted at $3 million. It was going to be all over the country at the same time to reintroduce the 1957 Chevrolet um, models. And uh, <clears throat> they wanted a, a New York composer to write the music for it. So I was up against some pretty stiff composition, competition yeah. uh, against uh, big names that were that were interested because it was a well-paying uh, job. And uh, uh, I guess it was at the end of the third day of auditions of composers that I got a spot. And I did uh, my brother-in-law and I, who had been doing an act in a, in a nightclub on 6th Avenue, 
uh, we went and did our act, uh, which I had written Mm -hmm. uh, as as my audition. And 10 days later, my agent called and said, you won this. He was very shocked because I was very new to the business. Right. What you won the audition, you're doing the Chevrolet show. So that started me in that in that field. But I'd also had some things in television. I, uh, back in, in the days when I arrived in 1954 in New York to, to try this, this thing, uh, Television was wide open to new material. Mm-hmm. It used up so much of it, Jason. That uh, you know, you could go in and, and you could you could sell two or three pieces of material, and they would use it within a month's time. And then they'd ask you for some more because <laughs> they had used it. Up. It was all, all, and it wasn't until later on in the seventies that they realized that the television producers realized that familiar music. Um, got just slightly better ratings than uh, new music. Okay. So, so they started to use familiar music, and of course the market for new music dried up. And that, that was it. But that was one of the things that I did. I also had some pop records that did well, a Patti Page record called Bring Us Together. Uh-huh. Uh, I, uh, I, <laughs> I even wrote some, some English lyrics for an album by Tito Rodriguez, the... Uh, Latin band leader wow. who had written, written his own songs with Spanish lyrics, and uh, my publisher wanted me to write the English lyrics for it, so uh, uh, I, I did, and, and uh, that was one of my uh, introductions into Latin music. That's fascinating. Do you, now I I would be remiss if I didn't ask what that act was that you auditioned with. Uh, like, were you going around, was this a comedy act, a full comedy act, a musical act, both? Yes, it was. It was called Songs for Squares. <laughs> and very, very corny. The uh-huh. whole thing was very corny. Uh-huh. And, but, but the sophisticated audiences loved it. Now, the person we opened for in the nightclub was Janice Mars, who was a singer of very sad songs. Okay. Like, and the people went to cry. <laughs> but they, they, it worked perfectly that these two buffoons came on for 45 minutes as an opening act in the nightclub, which was, which was corny and, and loud and, and raucous. And uh, the songs for Squares uh, did very well as an opening act for them. Wow. And it also did very well for my audition for the Chevrolet show. That's okay. Now, has that ever been uh, committed to tape? Has that ever been recorded, or do you have the sheet music? Where, where does that live? Uh, I have uh, I have a, a recording of us in the nightclub. Oh wow! Yep, oh. Uh, it was taken from one of the tables, and it, uh, uh, it, it you hear the audience talking and, and the, the, the applause and everything. Oh my but I goodness! Do. Yep. I. I... At, <laughs> If there's ever a way for me to hear that, I would love so much to hear it. Uh, no pressure, please, but that just sounds remarkable. Well, I will keep that in mind, Jason. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Um, that's, I mean, that's an amazing, that does not sound like the kind of act where, I guess maybe is it just that, where they just, what do you think impressed them most about this audition from uh, a funny song act? Um, I think most of most of my music uh, is very tuneful, mm-hmm. and it sticks sticks in people's heads. 
And I have an idea that the tunes that we did for these people stuck in their heads, and that's what made them want to use me, because they wanted the music to stick in the heads of the audiences, because the music contained uh, 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 promotional things that they were... They wanted they, they, the company wanted them to absorb, mm-hmm. to motivate, try harder. And it's not the same as an ad jingle because this is the period of see the USA in your Chevrolet, which might be one of the most successful jingles, uh, at least for cars of all time. Right. So, but you Absolutely. had you had to communicate with the people who were actually making and selling the cars. That's right. Our whole idea was not to sell the consumer, but to sell the to motivate uh, the seller of the cars, make them realize that they could do much better if they were if they did, worked a little more uh, smarter than they were working. And we would talk to the people who were really successful in that and found out what the, how they did it. And then we musicalized that. We made a show, a musical show, out of that, uh, those ideas. And they they sometimes the audience would catch fire with these things and really show the whole thing up in the bottom line of the company so that the next next year they asked us to come back and do it again wow wow that is i mean that is a complicated process because you hear uh, well i hear because i i interview and listen to a lot of comedians talking and you know a lot of times they have to go do what they just call a corporate gig which is where they kind of do their stand-up act but they do it for a bunch of salesmen but they don't really care they're not really there for that they kind of sometimes laugh they kind of sometimes don't don't whereas you and they sometimes get they do a little bit of research whereas you have to do you have to understand how the ins and out of the business in a way that no other outsider is really going to get a a grip on that's quite true we had to get into it quite deeply we tr- sometimes we toured the country, and just for instance, we're in McDonald's, we uh, toured the country and spent uh, a, a day in each of five cities uh, around, and had uh, went into five uh, McDonald's in each city, and we'd sit there in the booth, and and uh, they'd bring people to talk to us. They bring the com- the, the uh, manager over. They would bring the uh, the guy who turned the the burgers over, uh, the, some of the people who worked the desk, the front uh, counter, mm-hmm. and we would talk to them, and they would talk to us freely because we were not with the company. We were not in a position to, to take offense of anything sure. they said. They could complain, they could do anything, because we were just professional writers who were able to uh, learn from them what the underlying things were, uh, the motivations of people in that in that business do you think is is there another let's say in a science fiction version of this is there a timeline where you could have gone off and you're no longer doing uh music but you're you all of a sudden become just this business guru who can fix all your problems because you've interviewed so many people at all these companies we were interviewed many times when we returned from these trips around the country by uh people in the advertising part. They wanted to know what was happening out there uh, uh, that they could use. So it was, yes, it was, we, we weren't gurus anymore. We were just, we were just writers who took good notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we didn't, we had to learn enough about a business so that our audiences who knew far more about it than we could ever learn in six weeks time 
Uh, we had to be able to make them laugh. Uh, we had to get into their lives enough to know what their dreams were, what they were hoping or what they what they were afraid of. We, mm-hmm. we had to get into all that. But in a way, that's what you do for a regular musical uh, on Broadway. On Broadway, you're you're looking toward uh, what's what's in the headlines. How are people feeling about what's going on in Washington? How are people feeling about the tax situation? What, what's Wall Street Journal saying? You, you pay attention to that sort of thing if you're writing a Broadway show and hope, hoping that it succeeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a show, that my, my writing partner, Bill Heyer, whose birthday this is today, the 3rd of February. Oh, wow. And <laughs> uh, he wouldn't have liked to be around today. He was... A, <clears throat> A very freelance, free spirit guy, and uh, uh, things are, would be a little tight for him in, with solitary confinement. Sure, confined. <laughs> but it's, uh, he would be ninety-four, and I don't think he would like it at all. That's what I am. Yeah. Anyhow, he was a uh, he was a very funny man, and we put together a show called Tuscaloosa's Calling Me, but I'm not going. <laughs> Uh, which was a tribute to New York, just at a time when New York was at its lowest ebb in 1975. They were about to go broke and uh, default on their bonds, municipal bonds. So uh, this, we were very lucky in that our show, which was kind of a Valentine to uh, New York, uh, funny about New Yorkers, uh, it, <clears throat> it opened at just the right time. A kind of more cheerful, even although satirical, uh, look at New York than the one that we were, they were getting in the headlines. Do you do you think there's a, there's a point where in doing all this research you understand just what you think is funny, or do you think you have you're inside enough people's heads where you're like this must be what they think is funny too? Do you get a, a grasp on that from interviewing people? I uh, we do what Neil. Uh, what Neil Simon does. Mm-hmm. Neil Simon says, I don't write for a New York audience. I write what I think is funny and pray to God they think it's funny. Fair. And that's, that's the way, that's the way we, we worked in a room and if we laughed like hell, then we wrote it down and used it. Mm-hmm. If we didn't, we didn't use it. We didn't make any, any appraisal of what an audience might like. We did make a, uh, an appraisal of what they might not like mm-hmm. is what I was talking about. You know, if they're worried about what's happening in the stock market, you know, uh, that would uh, make certain subjects uh, uh, not a good idea. Uh, uh, there were there were a lot of research in all of this, but basically, uh, when we when you're dealing with comedy. We would only go with what we were sure was funny to us. That's that's honestly very refreshing to hear. I had this exact same conversation with uh, a guest yesterday or the day before, and I had the same question because my instinct is always to do exactly that. And, I, and it does seem to be consistent with people who know what they're doing, which is, I mean, how can you, you can't read a mind. You just have to hope that somewhere that's, that's, that's the connection we're going to find is our ability to laugh at the same stuff. Yeah, we were we were so fortunate that they that our audiences were ready to laugh at themselves, which were New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of our audiences were New Yorkers, and 
and uh, uh, we we poked fun at their at their at their the way they did things, their their attitudes, that their their uh, uh, insular insular feeling about New York that it was an island and the rest of the world was outside <laughs> of it. Everything happens on this island, and that's it. Right. Uh, the the the. Uh, uh, the, the attitudes toward toward uh, uh, toward uh, the, the sexual mores were uh, were where things are a lot freer in, in certain areas, and about the, the pride in in being a New Yorker and all of that. We 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 went into it into it quite uh, fully in the Tuscaloosa's calling, even though I'm not going. We had to cut ten minutes out of the title. After a while, people just called it Tuscaloosa. <laughs> or what year was Tuscal the Tuscaloosa musical? It opened in December of seventy-five. Uh, seventy-five. So this is after uh, uh, several years doing doing the corporate work. Was it any kind uh, of a relief? Oh, yeah, I worked. I did corporate work from nineteen fifty-six to nineteen eighty. Okay. Was it a relief to do something that wasn't corporate? Did it feel different to you? Well, it has a different feel to it because there are different requirements. But uh, but uh, I love writing. I love composing, and I like, love writing humor. And I've always been this way since I was 16. And I, I would do it for nothing, really. And people uh, pay me to do it, but... Uh, uh, I would do it for nothing because uh, it, it, it is uh, very, uh, it's something I love to do and uh, have always been that way. And when you get together with somebody else who always feels that way too, and you start buzzing things around in, in the same room, as I did with Bill Heyer, my writing partner from 1960 to 1980, uh, the it's really a joyful experience, and you you laugh you laugh like for six hours at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my job was to capture it all. I would put a uh, we would we would improvise a lot, and I would put a microphone of our stereo recorder, reel to reel, back in those days, around his neck and the other mic around my neck, and then we would just go, <laughs> turn on, put put our tape on, and just go. And about we, I'd, maybe an hour's worth, we'd stop, and I'd label the tape. And then the next day, I'd get maybe five minutes of really good material. Sure. <laughs> That's the way it goes, right? I mean, I, <laughs> I once interviewed a guy who self-released two records with his best friend. Um, and, you know, from what he remembered of his experience, he lived in New York you know, was working in New York same time you were. Um, and his friend still lived in, I believe he lived in the DC area and, um, he would come back home, you know, once a summer. And the one thing they would do is get together, starting out first with a wire recorder, then with a reel to reel. And they would sit down for eight hours at a stretch with some Pepsi and just be over caffeinated and record comedy for eight hours that nobody ever ended up hearing except for these two small records but it's exactly that. You take eight hours and whittle it down to a little bit of something that you hope other people are going to enjoy. But again, it must be the stuff that makes you just giggle the most. That's right. And, and of course, our laughter was on the tape. You Love could tell it. It, it didn't have to worry about that. 
That's so good. That is a, do, do those also exist somewhere? Have, have any of them been digitized or would you ever care to digitize them? It sounds like there's a lot of material. Yeah, we, yeah. Uh, we ha- I have boxes of them and we're just going through, slowly going through them. Dave and, and, uh, and Steve and I have been going through them. Amazing. Oh, that's so good to hear. Uh, that that that. Okay, that's that's very good to hear. I, I always like to know when stuff is being preserved. It's 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 important. It's important, especially when it it leads to something. It's always interesting to he- see the first steps on what becomes something quote unquote bigger. Um, right. Do you? What was the first? Uh, you know, professional or otherwise. What was the first funny song you ever wrote? Uh, <clears throat> it was. Uh, called Way Up in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Now, I was, at the, I was in school at Chapel Hill in North Carolina. That's where I was getting my master's degree. And uh, uh, I was working with uh, a lyricist down there who was also a very good promoter. His name was Orville Campbell, North Carolinian through and through. And uh, we wrote a whole bunch of songs, including a football song about a football hero named Charlie Choo Choo Justice, who mm-hmm. played for North Carolina. Uh, but the the way up in North Carolina uh, start, started to move on a local disc, uh, a, a local uh, a recording uh, that uh, my my partner had uh, put together. He had a colonial label with his label, and he started to uh, push this uh, this thing way up in North Carolina number. And before he finished that summer. He had three recordings of uh, one on Decca, one on Columbia Records, and one on Mercury Records, and and uh, they were, it was all over the country. Uh, Fred Waring did it, who, who was a very popular uh, uh, entertainer with the chorus and orchestra back in those days, and uh, that was the first uh, thing that really got around and. Uh, became a nationwide uh, uh, item. Uh, I was very happy with it, and uh, uh, to this day, it's still on uh, on YouTube. I was going through YouTube the other day, and there are three versions of that. Wow! Of that, that's on YouTube right now. Well, one I had never heard before mm-hmm. uh, by by a singer uh, uh, who who by a by rather. Uh, uh, Honky tonk piano player. Oh wow! And he was great. He she did a terrific job of it. But that was the fourth version of that song that came out in nineteen. I see, uh, fifty one. That, that was that one. And uh, uh, from that point on, that was uh, seventy years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, from that that point on, I have uh, been. Uh, uh, composing for all different things. I do a lot of sacred music for church choirs. That that business is a little quiet now with the can- pandemic. Sure. Uh, but but I've also done a lot of work for school choruses. So again, the same problem uh, over the years. But my uh, I never never turned down an opportunity. I don't care whether it pays a lot or a little. And I've been in both situations. Uh, I, I do it for the for the sake of doing it, and mm-hmm. I still am. I 
Steve and I wrote a number just recently called Wear a Mask. Mm-hmm. It's very good. A public service item, which is also on YouTube. And it's, it's a very, very good recording that was made of it, of a professional recording. But just great. Yeah, uh, it sounded fantastic. But but it's funny. I mean, you know, it's uh, uh, Steve is a comedy writer from the, the, the <coughs> David Letterman show, and and uh, he writes funny lyrics. And so we we put together this wear a mask, and uh, it's been. I hope uh, they they just been listened. It's been taken seriously, even though it's a comedy song. Sure. Uh, that the message has, has gotten through to people because we're our lives are depending on it now. It, 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 I mean, that is a <clears throat> an interesting line you don't necessarily think about uh, always is just, you know, I got the laugh, but is the central point still making its way through, which, again, you had to be concerned with for that many years of, of, of corporate work. Was there ever a time where you had to go back and pare back the laughs because you're like, maybe we haven't made the point? Or did you think or do you, you strike a balance every time? Uh, we know. uh, uh pretty much going in because we everything that we do for a corporate uh, America was we, we had to get the approval of the board of directors. Mm-hmm. We, Bill and I would go in uh, at, at, at an appointed time to, in the boardroom of a corporation and we would push a piano on wheels in there and two and a stool for Bill and we would do the entire show the two of us uh, from beginning to end, uh, for a group of 12, 15, 20 uh, executives from different vice presidential uh, positions in the in the show, in the uh, corporation, and get their approval. And if we ran luck in there, we had to change it. That's mm-hmm. all. If it was something that they felt was not going to work, or we were making fun of, of sacred cow, uh, we would have to pull back. So that was where the where the corrections came. By the time we got to rehearsals, and by the time we got into uh, uh, into the theater, and uh, we were well edited by by the by the uh, by the brass, so that uh, no, nothing untoward was going to happen. That makes sense. But it, it all depended on the sophistication of the of the of the uh, executives. Uh, McDonald's, for instance, a very sophisticated, at that time, a very sophisticated group of executives who knew what we were doing was going to help them. And they gave us free hand. I mean, I, we got very little criticism and very little resistance. Wow. What we, on the other hand, on some of the car companies, which tend to be a little bit more uh, uh, reserved and uh, 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 careful and conservative, uh, uh, we didn't have as free a hand, and we would go ahead and just, just just give them the whole shot. And if they said no, we don't want you to go in that direction. We would uh, correct it. That's all. We would write something else that uh, that was more dignified. That makes sense. I got to tell you, the, the the dread that came over me as you mentioned a room full of vice presidents. That sounds like the most humorless audience possible. <laughs> No, that's not the most humorous audience. Oh we no, had. <laughs> most humorous, humorless audience we we ever performed for was the were, were the executives of a network, uh, 
Oh. Uh, one of the three big networks. We did their affiliate show. You know, the, they had a they had a huge industrial show for all of the people who owned the stations that oh. ran uh, that network's material. And so we, uh, uh, when we finally got it on, uh, and they were the least responsive audience I've ever seen. They. I think people in the entertainment business, especially in television, feel that if they laugh, they are not being uh, professional. <laughs> right. And so they didn't. They sat on their hands. They didn't applaud much. And uh, it was very hard to realize that, that we'd put it in, in, in work, all this work on this, this, this show and uh, made sure that it was funny and, and, and then not have it, the response in the audience. On the other hand, to some of the audiences uh, of uh, uh, Seagram, for instance, uh, a house of Seagram, mm-hmm. uh, where raucous they they were, they loved the, the, the humor. They they loved uh, it was it, to them it was sort of like being at a party, and of course selling alcohol was their business, and parties uh, use alcohol, and so uh, we were right in line with that. So the humor went over very well with those. So th- there were humorless audiences, and there were also wonderfully raucous audiences. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know what the 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 alcohol company makes does make a lot of sense. It's very funny to me though how, again, as you say, how how kind of uh, picky that particular whichever network that was was. That is uh, that's very funny to me. I'm trying to look. <laughs> okay, so there is. Okay, so I didn't realize this. So there is uh, an LP of Tuscaloosa's Calling Me, which I didn't realize. Right. Great cover. This is a, I love it. Oh, my goodness. I love it. So ooh. Yeah, Vanguard, Vanguard Records. There we are. Yep. Wow. Yep. It, it. It, it sold uh, for like 20 years after the show closed. It, it was still an item on the, uh, in the record stores. That's great. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was a long time. And... And uh, <clears throat> it was, we've we've done uh, m- many other uh, uh, productions of that, not in New York, but around the country in various places. We've licensed the show, mm-hmm. and people in, in musical theaters and uh, on a community level, uh, uh, <clears throat> summer stock, that sort of a level. Yeah. But it's, it's it's had a kind of interesting life. Uh, it just keeps popping up every once in a while. We uh, <clears throat> like Steve uh, brought me a, 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 a Steve Young of uh, Bathtubs uh, brought me a, a video that he had taken with his iPhone of a woman singing the finale of Tuscaloosa in a nightclub that had people at six foot spacing and wearing. Masks and everything. Oh wow! And the song was all a love song about New York, and uh, that, that, that we're still here, we're still doing it, we're still being New Yorkers. Uh, it's very touching. Yeah. But uh, he performed it as part of her act, the finale of Tuscaloosa. Huh. That's remarkable. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was it was very touching to me too. Oh, I I, I can imagine. I mean, you know, that's I mean that's the. Maybe we don't all necessarily heavily long for that kind of longevity, but when you get it, you're not going to turn it down. That's, you know, come on. <laughs> you know? That's right. Come on. Well, you know, 
bathtubs is getting that now. Bathtubs has had its run. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did first of all did all of the uh, uh, all of the uh, uh, film festivals all over the world, for that matter, and mm-hmm. and <clears throat> then it had its run in, in commercial theaters uh, where it, it ran and and was held over and many of them, including in New York, and uh, <clears throat> then it went on. Uh, uh, a home video, home uh, watching uh, on Netflix, mm-hmm. and it, and it's still on uh, Amazon Prime. And just uh, just last week, it started on Netflix in Australia. Oh, great! <laughs> Wonderful. So, so Bass is is really having a you know a a, a kind of constantly reborn uh, existence. Uh, uh, Steve calls it the movie that wouldn't die, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. You know, that it, it has uh, it has uh, had that sort of uh, of uh, a constant uh, popping up because people love it so much, and can certainly understand that. You, you always hear stories of when somebody does something corporate or does something on the corporate dollar. Did you ever get to sneak anything in, not for anybody else, but something for you, some uh, like a, a sly joke between you and your writing partner that nobody else would get? No, no, no we that, that, <clears throat> we were too busy to to fool around with something like that. We were much more. We we, we did one show, got it on, then went right to another show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like uh, there wasn't time. Yeah, for us to do. We did do a lot of in-jokes. Sure. In other words, things that only that audience knew about, mm-hmm. uh, so that, uh, you know, it was really for them, tailored for them. And you you could have somebody walk in from outside, and they would have no idea why everybody was laughing. Sure. I, now, had, a, I had a feeling you would have to work with that, because that, that that's, that's the way into their hearts, I, I have a feeling. Well, it, yeah, it was the whole idea. The whole idea was to raise their expectations, to make them realize that they were capable of much better performance than they were doing, mm-hmm. and that it wasn't going to re- require so much more work, but to work more smartly, mm-hmm. to, to under to 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 apply their intelligence a little bit more to their job, and to realize, as we found in many of these corporations, that the work they were doing was also socially beneficial to the country, you know, to the economy, mm-hmm. or to, uh, in the case of uh, diesel, uh, uh, the, the, the diesel division of uh, General Motors, uh, where they didn't realize that the, where those diesel engines had been extremely helpful in draining swamps and doing all kinds of things that, that uh, built up the country, built up the economy and and the uh, and the incomes of people, the farmers, uh, were saving lives of people on the on the high seas uh, with a fishing boat, picking up survivors of a of a sunken vessel, all sorts of things we could dramatize for them, uh, so that they would feel a little bit more of the significance of what they were doing. In, in in sales of diesel engines. That makes sense. I, I did ask Steve if there's anything he thought I should ask you about, and he did mention, now that you bring up the Detroit Diesel uh, one, uh, he did say that a song called Daddy's AFAs got a huge roaring laugh response from the from the, the diesel audience. That's right. 
the AFA was the repayment. A lot of these guys used their own money uh, to put out advertising and all kinds of promotions and everything for diesel engines. Uh, among the companies where they who would buy them, the uh, the automobile companies uh, or diesel engines uh, for boat builders and so forth, truck builders, uh, they would do that. Uh, they put out their own money, and they would get repaid by the central company in Detroit in a thing called an AFA. Uh, it was the, the <clears throat> I forget what the initials stand for, but it was their repayment for the money they had in, uh, invested. And sometimes these AFAs were late. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes the, the, the company didn't get around to, to getting them into the hands of these uh, distributors uh, until, you know, months later. So uh, what what we did was to get a young girl and put her in very poor, uh, very uh, 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 ragged uh, clothes mm-hmm. on her knees, scrubbing the floor. And her first line was, "I'm going to go to college when Daddy's AFAs come in," <laughs> and. It was such a shot of laughter, of recognition of two things. One, that we were bringing up the subject, the sore subject mm-hmm. uh, that was them. But the other was that the company would allow it. <laughs> <laughs> and this huge shot of laughter uh, came through. And, it, the, uh, and the, the rest of the lyrics, nobody heard. And they were very clever, very good, very good, funny lyrics. But all I heard was, I'm going to go to college when Daddy's FAAs come in, <laughs> meaning she was going to be scrubbing floors for <laughs> forever because these things were so delayed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was wonderful to hear that hear that that, that, that release because and, and release of anger uh, that was sitting in those, these guys, and as a result, it was it was a a, a wonderful. Um, uh, Steam valve that was let off. Yeah, the anger and the resent- resentment in these guys of waiting for this money to repay them. They were having to operate in debt mm-hmm. uh, because they weren't getting these these repayments in time. But it, it was an inner joke. Nobody would ever, from the outside, have understood why that was happening. But it was a completely inside joke. Yeah. But I mean that is also the nature of any good joke, huh? I mean that is that's the perfect landing of a joke too. When you have figured out the situation the best way possible, and you're like, well, I think this is the best way to to make this joke, and you just go for it. You commit to it with the. I mean that whole setup is beautiful, and uh, I mean you can't ask for anything better than that kind of reaction. I know. Yeah. I wish I had a. I had a. a, 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 a a recording of that moment. Uh-huh. That would have been great. We, unfortunately, they were very new. Uh, Detroit Diesel was very new to that uh, to the industrial show, and uh, they didn't know how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. They just hoped it would do its job, which it did, of course. But nobody thought we ought to film this or we ought to record it at the time. Wow, that's that's amazing. I was just looking. Uh, 
just to see if I could find, uh, you know, just a bit more about some of your early your early music. Was uh, so who was the first person to record way up nor- in North Carolina? Okay, I had a, I put together a, a group of two girls and three guys who are music students, and they were all very very much up and on uh, singing and singing together. And uh, we put together uh, a recording of it. And uh, Orville, my lyricist and promoter, uh, sold that, sold our version of it to Mercury Records. And that's the one that went around the country. Okay. Uh, uh, first. And then it was covered by Columbia with a guy named Champ Butler, who sang, who's a Southern singer, and uh, he fit well character-wise in it. And then there was one done by a disc jockey, and I've forgotten his name, uh, WNYC, I think, disc jockey, or NEW, WNEW, disc jockey, of the time, very successful. Uh, he, I guess, I've always wanted to to to, to record, and Decca uh, gave him this song to record. Very unusual for a New York disc jockey to sing way up in North Carolina, mm-hmm. my home sweet. <laughs> But he did, and it, it came off. It was it was a seller. So <laughs> that's great. You never know about those things. Yeah, of course. Wow, that's that's fascinating. What was it like uh, getting to? You know, this is not something I've really experienced, other than maybe a CD here or there. What's it like uh, holding your own record in your hands the first time? Uh, let me think. Let me think. I think the first thing I did was to frame it. Yeah. Yep. I think I have it around here somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was yeah. I do have it. So I I wouldn't be able to put my hands on. But I have copies of those records back then. They were all uh, quite fragile. Sure. They were made of bakelite, and they were seventy-eight per revolutions per second per minute. Yeah, uh, seventy-eight. And uh, this was pre uh LP 33 and a third and pre uh, pre45 right uh, <clears throat> but it was I was I was always glad to see the, the, my things done uh professionally and with the beautiful artwork some of these artists do on covers which are, are really good work yeah but but actually, I would frame it and then I forget it because I'm uh, my my favorite show is my next one. Sure, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. Yeah. That's that's how you keep going. Yeah, and I still am now. I'm 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 writing something every day, and and uh, I'm hopeful uh, that I, my days keep going because I'm according to statistics, I'm on borrowed time as it is at ninety four. But uh, I'm enjoying my work, and I always have. And uh, I'm still with the same wonderful wife, Nancy. Uh, we've been married 68 years. Wow. I I wonder. So if you're if you're writing music every day, does that involve you just sitting down at the piano and going from there, or do you write longhand and then you play it out on the piano? Uh, I used to work at the piano all the time. Now I have done it for so long that I work it in my head. Mm. And then I write it down in pencil on a piece of manuscript paper. And when I've got it the way I want it on, on the manuscript paper, then I transfer it via the computer uh, to my finale uh, uh, software, and it comes out to print it. 
Oh, okay. Wow. That's kind of remarkable. That's kind of wonderful. And then when I record things, uh, uh, I I use a, a digital recorder, and I have eight tracks, so I can overdub myself so I sound like a male chorus. Love it. And uh, sing all the harmony parts and things like that on, on some of my newer stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to know, uh, so obviously, you know, Steve and Deva went and made that documentary, which of course ruins the collector's market for Steve in the process, but he did tell me he's got most of what he wants. But I would love to know if there's, if people are out there, regardless of value, is there one particular corporate one that people should seek out that you're particularly proud of? Well, I think it's it's chosen itself. I haven't chosen, I didn't need to choose it. It's Diesel Dazzle. Okay. And it's because it is such an unlikely <laughs> article to glamorize. Right. I mean, it's one thing to glamorize a Chevrolet, which is a beautiful car to start with. <laughs> but another thing to, to glamorize something as utilitarian <laughs> as a diesel engine. And so when we did glamorize the, the business, uh, uh, and, and for a fairly well, apparently, uh, we were at the top of our form in 1966, I think that was when it was, uh, uh, Bill and I, and uh, uh, we did some of our best work uh, for that for that show, and uh, it, it just it just rose out of the out of the uh, pile itself and and showed itself for what it was. Uh, Don Bowles uh, used to <coughs> was on the, in the movie. You may recall uh, a, a former uh, rock star. Uh, he he discovered our work through Diesel Dazzle. He that was the first one he ever paid attention to uh, from the punk <laughs> point of view. Mm-hmm. And so you can see how broad, how broadly uh, the Diesel Dazzle score. Uh, appealed to people, young and old, uh, regardless of, of what your background is. It was just, it just happened, and uh, we 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 were never satisfied with anything but but first rate shows that we worked on. But this one uh, exceeded that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I and it's one that I, you know, I, I do keep my eye out for these every once. In a while. I am by no means the collect. I think I have one. I have one. It's not a musical though. It is a corporate. Uh, it's for I. It was done for IBM out here in Santa Monica. But there's no music, which is the part that's just like, how did people sit and listen back to this? There's no music to sing along to, <laughs> which kind of blew my mind. It's a yeah. I don't. I don't even know. Well, that's what the way it from. always was before yeah? we got it. And to, before writers and, and <clears throat> composers got into the business in, in the 50s, okay. 1950s, it was that way. That's the way sales sales meetings were held. They had one 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 speaker after another, and some of them were known as promotion as uh, motivational speakers. And uh, <clears throat> they they did a pretty good job, but it got to the point where they wanted to do better, and they. Somebody hit on the idea of of having a, a musical, write a musical about it, and see if the kind of the, the the persuasiveness of musical theater. I think that's the word I was looking for. The persuasiveness of musical theater working for them, and that's what happened when we got into it. 
we were much better at persuading uh, the people in that audience to try harder than the motivational speakers were. Mm-hmm. That's that is uh, that's a lot. First of all, it's a lot to put in your hands, but obviously, obviously, you killed it. I mean, it's it's just one of those things where it's like, ah, man, to to have that kind of trust put in you, and then to just. Again, I mean, but you're doing it the right way. You're just, well, what works the best for me? What do I think is funny? What do I think is a good song? That's really all. You you, you can't read minds. That's right. <laughs> and, you, and you use your intelligence to tell you, oh, this is too too strong for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or they, let's, let's not go in this direction. It doesn't feel right for them. Mm-hmm. You had that kind of instinct. But basically, you would never go into the, to a presentation to the board of directors without having confidence that it was funny because you thought it was funny. Right, right. My goodness. Um, Hank, I have had a lot of fun speaking with you. Uh, Where can people find your work online besides hunting down some older records of yours? Oh, there's a lot on on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Uh, you You just go in and say songs by Hank Beebe. And you you will find a huge number of them that sung by choruses and uh, individuals and all kinds of places. I'm I'm seeing that uh, Tuscaloosa is calling me. I can get it uh, on a on Discogs.com. I can get it uh, for a reasonable price, so maybe I'll have to pick that up on vinyl. Um, also, yep. if they go to HankBB.com, they can get all of your uh, recent work too, right? That's right. Yeah, but the, the, you know, that's that's quite uh, comp- comprehensive. Uh, and uh, offers uh, my latest things. Yeah, right. That's wonderful. And everybody should go watch Bathtubs Over Broadway because uh, it's just a good, By all it's means, good movie. Uh, you, you'll never regret it. <laughs> no, no, it's it's too good. I, anything that it's, I think I talked to, I think I said it every time I interviewed Steve about it, but it was just, it's one of those movies that I saw going one way entirely and did not see it coming out the other end with him being, with hi, with him having this sincere love for this stuff it's true yep hank thank you so much for talking with me i really appreciate it you're welcome welcome jason anytime this is fun um and i want to thank everybody for listening and as always have a good thing Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15-plus years. Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!